I just have one hope for you today, and that it is you would leave here today rejoicing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that you would leave this place today happy, grateful, hopeful in the righteousness, the sinlessness, the purity of Jesus Christ. Typically, in our church, we are preaching through books of the Bible, but to end out our summer, we've paused to just look at the person of Jesus Christ for a few weeks. And so, the passage which Marilyn read for us will be a main passage for us this morning. But we will be taking from several passages this morning and to lead us to see the biblical rejoicing in the righteousness of Christ. We're really just going to do two things this morning. One, we're going to spend some time looking at our own sinfulness according to Scripture. What does the Bible say about our own sinfulness according to Scripture? And then we're going to look at, in Scripture, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our own sin and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that as we have come here to um, worship through prayer and through singing, that we would now be able to worship through hearing your word preached, hear it and obey it, believe it and trust it, and live in greater joy, live in uh, serious obedience, live in gratitude because of what you have done for us and because of who you are for us. Help us to leave this place today rejoicing in Christ's righteousness for us. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name together. Amen. Amen. Well, in my life, at least growing up, secular music had sort of a stigma about it. The Christian culture uh, in the 90s, which is when I was a teenager, kind of divided up music into really two realms, that which was Christian, which worshiped God and sang about good things and didn't curse, and you could play for your kids on the radio, and then there's all the bad music that's about sex and drugs and rock and roll and, and all of those things, and there was a pretty clear division, and um, well, I had some stories. I think I'm just going to save us some time. To a degree, that's very true, but often today, actually, sometimes I have found that quote-unquote secular music actually says truer things about humanity than what the Christian top 10 is saying. So, for example, the top three song on Apple Music right now in Christian music is a song called Baby Baby by Amy Grant that came out 30 years ago, and it's top three this week. But I think sometimes if we listen to honest music in the world, they're actually repeating refrains that come from Scripture, unknowingly and unwittingly, saying things about themselves that, when honest, actually agree with Scripture. Every now and then, just to keep my thumb on culture, I will listen to the top 50 songs these days. It's my way to convince myself I'm still kind of young. I was doing that this week. Just li- I'll listen to every song, kind of get the gist of it, keep, keep going. Some, some songs, their entire intention is to be as vulgar as possible. I usually skip on. You just kind of understand what that's, what's happening there. But the very first two lines and the very first song of Apple's 
top new music last week is a song by Justin Bieber called Stay, and this is his words. I do the same thing I told you that I never would. I told you I'd change even when I knew I never could. And we in the West apparently love this, I will warn you, expletive-filled song. It seems to resonate with us or it would not be so popular. I do the same thing I told you that I never would. I told you I'd change even when I knew I never could. When I hear these words, when I heard that this week, I thought that is man's most honest self-assessment. That no matter how hard we try to be good and change, we cannot. Whether it's in a relationship with a man and a woman as it is in this song, or period. We might be capable of a few random acts of kindness or some charity, but mankind on our own, we are not inherently good. This is the great problem of mankind. Every child, every man, every woman, Paul summarizes in Romans 3.23, saying all have fallen short of the glory of God. He says in chapter 5 of Romans, sin came into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. It's a disease. Sinfulness is a disease that every human has. I want us to take some time listening to Scripture this morning and our own experiences and just throw off the idea that we're all generally good. If you have tried to do good lately or at all, you would feel its difficulty. C.S. Lewis says it like this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. I think you can attest that this is true. Some of the most frustrating moments in your life is when you try very hard to be good and you end up not being able to do the thing that you even want to do. Lewis goes on, a silly idea is current today that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist 
Lewis says. Anyone who has tried to be very good has come up against the Bible's, what we're going to see now is the Bible's teaching about sin. If you have tried to be very good, you undoubtedly would have bumped into, knowingly or unknowingly, these five problems, these five truths about sin, whether you know it or not. These are very general five. The first one that we would bump into if we were trying to be very good that we would bump into is that, number one, we are born into sin. We're born into sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Consider how we all got into sin in the first place. We descended into it, sort of. No one has to teach a baby how to tell their parents no. No one has to teach toddlers how to throw a tantrum at a restaurant or in the cereal aisle. It comes quite naturally to us. I mean, we can help them get better at it, by the way we parent, but they learn it on their own. It's, it's natural in that sense. Number two, sin is in the heart. The problem of sin is in the heart. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 23, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. We don't even have to, quote, do anything the anger that we feel in our hearts makes us liable to the hell of fire. Our hearts are enough to condemn us. Number three, our wills are corrupted, or our will is corrupted. Paul talks about this not necessarily explicitly, but by his own experience in Romans chapter 7, verse 15 through 17. Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions. I mean, I don't, I don't think this is where Justin Bieber got his song from, but it's the same idea. I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul explains that sin is working its way from the inside out, that our very wills are weakened and corrupted. Even when we want to do good, even when there's some desire to do good, our wills don't do it. We will other things instead. Number four, we have broken God's law. We have broken the law. We're not just kind of bad people. We've actually broken the law, I'm not just a person that likes to go fast, I've actually went past the speed limit. James chapter 2, verse 10 says it like this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one part has become guilty of all of it. James is explaining that we cannot be partial about our sins, kind of boasting that I don't have this sin that, that they have. No, if you have broken one part of the law, you've broken the law. There are no pet sins which are not as bad as other sins in God's eyes. No, if you are a lawbreaker, you are a lawbreaker. 
Now, in a temporal sense, yes, some sins are more grievous to God. Some receive severe punishment. Some require greater sacrifice, for example, in Exodus through Leviticus. But in a spiritual point, to fail at any one point of the law is to fail to keep God's law, period. And by the fact that we've all fallen, by the fact of our nature, by the fact of our wills, we have all broken the law at some point. Number five, our natures are sinful, or our nature is sinful. We see Paul use this language in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This is the fifth. We could have 10 or 15 passages easily. This is just a few to paint uh, a general picture for us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We could, we could add number four here, five and six, and just say you were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, Paul's talking about people before they were Christians, were by nature children of wrath, children of God's wrath, children by nature deserving God's wrath wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a universal statement about mankind. By nature, we were all children of wrath. Our desires of the body and our mind were corrupted like Adam and Eve's and since Adam and Eve's. So just like a tiger is born with predatory instincts, and birds have the instinct to fly south for the winter, so man has the nature to sin against God, the instinct, the nature. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he did not merely confess that he had broken a law. Instead, he confessed something deeper, knowing himself and mankind. He knew himself rightly, and so he confessed in Psalm 51, verse 5, upon adultery and murder, behold, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I am a sinner through and through and through, which is why I did what I did with Bathsheba and why I had her husband killed. Not because I messed up and did a bad thing, but because I was conceived in sin and it keeps coming out. Friends, I want us to understand this morning that we are the great problem of evil in the world. When people sit down to talk about evil in the world and God's relationship to evil with the world, how do we often think about it? When it comes to thinking philosophically about evil in the world, we tend to think of the worst possible scenarios and then use that to question God's goodness because of the terrible evil that God allows. So often in questions and conversations like this, it, it will go like this. If God is so good, then why did he let Hitler, why did he let the Nazis kill the Jews and take over Europe? Why did God allow that if he is so good? Why did he allow that 
really bad, really dark, really wicked evil to happen. Why did God do that? But the example itself fundamentally takes too lightly how God responds to all sin in the world. Humanity's great problem is not the Nazis and those people who have gone before us in history leaving us high extreme examples of mankind's sin worked out. Don't believe lies today about human progression that we are just naturally on our own becoming better people. Read the news. We're not progressing. We're only finding out how much of a lie the idea of human progression in morality terms is. Oh, but we are growing in technology. We are growing in information. There's more information now available at the fingertips, a touch, a button, or by asking our phone to just tell us. This is the way we live in. My kids will tell me, Dad, what's the answer to this question? I don't know. And they'll just say without even asking me, hey, Siri, what's the answer to this question? What are we doing? And yet here, here's, the, here's how history is going to remember the information age. They learned much and they changed very little. They knew more, but they did not get better. That's what we're seeing happening right now. We know so much, and yet we are as bad off as we have ever been. The great problem is not our spouse or the people who are in traffic, it's us. It's me, it's, it's you. We, we, we should not be asking why did God allow the Nazis to do the things they did. We should be asking why in the, girl, the world would God spare me after the way I treated my wife? Why would God overlook my thoughts about that person and let me take another breath? Why would God sit there and watch me covet everyone else's stuff despising the things that he has given me? Why would God let that go? Why does not God deal with me right now? Do not believe for a moment that any of us stand against the stream of evil men and women in history. To the contrary, we are in the stream of what is wrong with men and women. We are by birth. We are in heart. We are by will. We are by law and by nature sinful. Throw off thinking of ourselves as generally good. And this is the way, however, we tend to think of ourselves because part of the deceitfulness of sin is that we are tempted, that we are led, that we are taught even by our culture, nurtured in this way to minimize the sin in ourselves and maximize the sin in others. Sin itself loves to minimize itself in our lives. When people get upset at us for our sin, we tend to get upset at them for their sin of noticing our sin. Instead of being ever ready to acknowledge our sin, we instead want people to recall all the good things that we have done. 
that happens every single day. We do it all the time. Well, they say that I did this really bad thing, but, but they don't know all the good things that I've done. Or they don't know the situation. We do this all the time. Sin loves the deceitful game of making sure we don't think about our own sinfulness. People who are reading their Bibles and agreeing with God and His Word do not and should not talk or think like that about their sin. Rather, when someone lovingly, or even if someone does it unlovingly, when someone approaches us about our sin, mentions a sin, makes a post about our sin toward us or not, we should be eager to acknowledge it. In fact, we should be eager to say, I hear what you're saying, and I want to let you know it's worse than that. That's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just what you saw. I'd be ashamed to tell you what I was actually thinking about doing. You're right. Instead of taking every chance we can to defend ourselves as if we are righteous when the Bible is testifying on every page that it isn't so. There's a song by, used to be a Christian artist now, his views have changed, called Crooked Deep Down, by a guy named Derek Webb. He says it so well. My life looks good, I do confess. You can ask anyone. Just don't ask my real good friends, because they will lie to you, or worse, they'll tell you the truth. Because there are things that you would not believe that travel into my mind. I swear I try and capture them, but I always set them free. It seems bad things comfort me. Good Lord, I am crooked deep down. Everyone is crooked deep down. But good Lord, I am crooked deep down. Everyone is crooked deep down. Everyone is crooked deep down. This is what the Bible has to say about every person since Adam and Eve. Everyone is crooked deep down. This means that when we stand before God, we deserve God's judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Every man, woman, dies once, and after that comes judgment. Think about it. That is what is next. That's what's next for all of us. A few more short breaths, death, and then judgment. We die, and then we are judged. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 12 ends with these two verses. The end of the matter after Solomon and all his wisdom is looking all over the world and spending all of his money and his time to pleasure himself and everything in the world and find out what's, what's worth it. Vanity after vanity, everything is vanity, but he finishes Ecclesiastes with this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Verse 14, the very last verse in Ecclesiastes. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every thing will come into judgment. Not just your best, not just what you put on your resume, not just what you tell your friends, not just what you post on social media. Every thing. John describes the final judgment in these terms in his vision in the book of Revelation. This is what he saw as the end of mankind and how it will work. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. He says, Then I saw a great, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no, one, no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, let me ask you if you are ready for this day. Are you ready to stand before God this day? Is there anything between you and your sin and God this day? It may just be that this day is today. You may be thinking, yes, but I know that that day is not this day. I have so many days left to ponder or consider such things. The Bible is clearly describing some future day. But isn't it already some future day? How many some future days have now passed for others? How many of our ancestors and so many of them unexpectedly have already met their future day? Remember what James says in James 4, 14, that which we've sung this morning. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Do not be lulled to sleep by the fact that you go to work every day and you come home. You, you play a little and, and you pleasure a little. And everything seems fine. And that God's 
wrath and the day of judgment isn't even a thought because it's not felt. And Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon. I think it was in the late 1730s, early in what's called the Great Awakening. It's a popular sermon by title, although it should be read more carefully and often, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And famously, Edwards was unable to finish the sermon because of the great outcry that arose from the congregation upon hearing it. He never even actually spoke about Christ because he didn't have a chance to get there. One of the things that Edwards warned, which caused such a great response, is this the confronting of the idea that you have time. He says, It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. It is no security to a natural man that he is now in health and that he does not see in which way he should immediately go out of the world by any accident and that there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows this is no evidence that a man is not on the very brink of eternity and that his next step will not be into another world. Friends, consider this future day and where you stand with God this day. This is the day in which you stand before God in your sin. You are already bare before God in your sin. All the deeds of your hands, all the thoughts of our minds, all the desires in your heart are right this very moment unhidden before God. They're not hidden from Him now to be exposed later. We are just as deserving of God's judgment today as we will be any other day, no more and no less on our own account. Maybe you've been hiding in the bushes like Adam and Eve, trying to hide the fact that you are ashamed so that God does not see, and you have been doing this unwittingly, not hiding in the bushes. If you actually go hiding in the bushes, we would be concerned. But maybe you're hiding behind hobbies. Maybe you're hiding behind busyness. Maybe you're hiding behind productivity. Maybe you're trying to hide behind a few good deeds. But in reality, you cannot bear to face God alone for a few moments in the closet of prayer. Because there you go and you are reminded of your own sin before God. You can't go to Him exposed. You can't go to Him alone. You do religious things, but they are all hiding as God's piercing gaze is fixed on you and he sees through your smiles, through your religion, through your outward niceties, are you ready in your heart of hearts and your soul right now for God to look at you and judge you as you are? Do not pretend that just because we are living and breathing today that we have earned some favor from God by our own righteousness. Jonathan Edwards says again, there's nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, he says, I mean sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no matter of difficulty. 
Have you come to believe in your heart of hearts that God is right and that he is good to fix his wrath squarely on you and that he would be just at any point in time to call all of your debts in? That your great concern, have, has your great concern not become the Hitlers of the world, not the corrupt political leaders of the world, what, not what someone said on Facebook this week, not even only of those people who have personally abused you, but your own state before God. On you individually, have you come to believe and see and fear that we are in sin before a holy creating God. What stands against us is not what someone else has done to us. Before God is our own lust, our own lies, our own bitterness, our own greed, our own desires condemn us before the holy creator God. So Paul says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Where is the joy for the Christian? Where is the joy for anyone with such a report about ourselves and our family and our neighbors? I want to say that we may very well this day be lacking joy in Christ because we have lacked sorrow over sin. Those who minimize their sin will be very unhappy in Christ, unhappy Christians if in fact you are a Christian at all. One reason that we lack serious, sturdy, undefeatable joy is because we belittle our own sin. We take pride in our own righteousness. Therefore, we cannot rejoice in Christ. Like a man saved from drowning, we're like the man who was saved from drowning by a lifeguard. There he was, sinking, head underwater, arms flailing just above the surface. He's already taken water into his lungs, and then all of a sudden he goes motionless, and his hands slowly drift beneath the surface. But just then, the lifeguard splashes into the water, pulls him out, and resuscitates him on the shore. And when the man comes to, the man has the gall to stand up, dust himself off, and say to the lifeguard, thank you for the assistance. I was just about to swim out. What does that man miss? The joy of being saved. He should have embraced the lifeguard saying, thank you. Thank you for saving my life. But he missed the joy of being saved because he was mistaken about his own desperation. 
In his pride, he was blind to his own drowning, his own weakness, his own sin, his own death, his own limpness, and therefore he had no joy. He only had self-righteousness and pride. He could not have joy because what his joy was based on was a total lie. You never had it. You weren't about to swim out. You couldn't do it on your own. You weren't good. You were sinking, and then you were saved. You can't have joy on a lie. You can say all you want. I just love, I love the fact that I've got a hundred blocks of 14 karat gold at home. I love it. I rejoice in it. I'm so happy. But if you don't have it, we're just going to make fun of you. It's a lie. lie. You can say you're happy. It's a lie. There's nothing there. You're actually bankrupt. And we miss joy in Christ so often and entirely if we are not careful because we rejoice in our own righteousness. And it's a lie. Because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's an old, somewhat corny song, but it says it well. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Friends, I do not think that we are in danger of thinking too much about our own sin. Instead, we are, I am certain, in the West in danger of thinking about it and of it too little. If you think your sin is small, your joy in Christ will in turn be very, very small. Because our joy and our confidence and our peace is in Christ himself. When we look at Christ in himself, there is an ever-flowing, never-dying joy, an unbreakable confidence that we are at peace with God. There are so many ways in which Jesus has saved us from sin, so many reasons to rejoice over Jesus Christ. His blood was spilled on the cross. His blood was spilled to make what we call atonement for sin, to wash it away. Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our place. We use words to describe that like propitiation. He was where we should have been. We use words like penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus took the crime and punishment punishment that we deserve for our crime. And there's Jesus raising from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death by never dying again. Jesus gives eternal life to all who will believe in him. 
But there's a, an aspect of Jesus which I think in light of our sin, we sometimes are not careful enough to rejoice in. And that Jesus is a man without sin. Jesus is a man without any sin. And the more we will consider our own sin and the sinlessness of Jesus Christ, the more our joy over him will grow. The more we will be able to confidently stand before God and before other men, the more we will be drawn to God instead of hiding away in the bushes of our busyness. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may know that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If we sin, we have Christ who's righteous. 1 Peter 2, 22, He committed no sin. Even though he was being abused and crucified and persecuted, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 7, 6, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I don't even think that we can imagine the glory of it. Can you imagine never having had a lustful thought toward a woman? Not even a thought. Can you even imagine never having been jealous for someone else's life? Jesus, Hebrews says, was tempted in every way, yet without sin. This does not necessarily mean that Jesus was tempted with every instance of temptation that we might face. Jesus didn't have the internet. He never drove down Mopac at 5 p.m. In Matthew 4, we have the account that gives us a picture of Jesus' temptation that he faced. Matthew chapter 4 is that time when Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the desert where he was tempted by the devil. And he was tempted in three ways in specific. One, he was tempted with his appetite, tempted with food, tempted not to trust God's provision. Satan asked him to turn these rocks into bread. Jesus was tempted for self-protection. Hey, throw yourself off and just see what God does. And finally, he was tempted in his devotion to, to Satan in worship, tempted to turn away from worshiping God. But Jesus says, I should worship none but God alone. But think about what Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry you think? Why are the wilderness and the 40 days and the hunger important? It's because in this passage, Jesus is not just randomly drawn into the desert, randomly tempted by Satan. Jesus' temptation in the desert means something profound in relation to the rest of the biblical narrative. In this temptation, the things that Jesus faced in the desert in this moment, he is reliving the universal human story. The temptation 
in the Garden of Eden and at once reliving a particular story, Israel's test in the wilderness. It's like both Adam and Eve and Israel and their experience of temptation left footprints in the garden, left footprints in the desert where they had gone, where they had been tempted to provide for themselves, to protect themselves, and to worship someone besides God. And their footsteps where they failed, where they gave in to temptation, are still there. And every man after woman after man after woman, we keep following Adam and Eve. We keep stepping right in their footsteps, falling to the same temptations to provide for ourselves, trust ourselves. But Jesus takes the walk into the garden. He takes the walk into the desert and he steps everywhere man has stepped and was tempted yet without sin. Without sin. Russell Moore states it like this, the first Adam was tested in the God-blessed garden and fell. The second Adam was tested in the God-cursed desert and won. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says it fully. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now what's this priest about? We have this high priest who's able to sympathize with us. Why don't you think about this? How did you answer the question earlier? Are you ready in your own sinfulness? Is there anything between you and your sin ready to stand before God and be judged by Him today? Is there any reason that something about you and your sinfulness would keep a just God from judging you in His holiness? The answer is that none of us can answer that we are righteous and can stand before God on our own. But here's what Hebrews is saying. Jesus can. Jesus has been tempted in every way, yet he is without sin. And that priest's language simply means that Jesus stands in between us. He goes into God's presence before us on our behalf. He represents us. He goes in on our behalf. Like the priest in the Old Testament would take in the sacrifice on behalf of all the people and they would take it in and they would offer it to God. And now Jesus takes in his own blood, his own life. He is the lamb without sin before God. His death on the cross was in our place. His resurrection from the grave is to give us life. But his standing before God in righteousness means that we can stand before God in righteousness. A great joy in Christ is that there is a man, the God-man, who can stand in front of God on behalf of us as a righteous man. There is one who is righteous. His name is Jesus. So then those who believe in Christ can go on in with Christ into God and live in perfect peace and fellowship 
with God. We can, Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace, draw near to God. We don't have to cower before God. We don't have to shrink back. We don't have to run from God or bury our hearts in busyness. We can sit alone with Him, with His Word open, in His Spirit, praying in His Son, and enjoy God because Jesus' righteousness has become our own. He is righteous, and it is given to us. You do not need to worry about your life and eternity if you trust Christ's righteousness. You do not need to be defensive when people accuse you. You are unrighteous. Christ is righteous. You do not need to withdraw from God. You do not need to withdraw from His people because of your sin. Trust Christ's righteousness. Friends, this is what the church does every time we gather. What we are basically doing every time we gather for church, every time we gather in a small group, our fellowship is defined by we believe that we are great sinners, but that Jesus is very righteous and that he died on the cross for our sins. To trust in Jesus is to have his righteousness be seen as your own before God so that you can stand before God in joy and confidence. Paul says it this way, Romans 5, 18 to 19. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. Come to Christ today. Confess your sin. Believe in him. Receive his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word to us and what is in it that we have read today. And that we are great sinners, but that Christ has been tempted and is without sin. So I pray that you would help us to rejoice today, leaving here today a total peace, a total rest, having confessed our sin to you and rejoicing in Christ's righteousness for us. What a rest, what a peace, what a joy. I'll give you just a moment to respond and reflect, and then I'll come back in just a moment. God, we're so thankful for Christ, who is our righteousness. Thank you that by him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you. We are great sinners. He is a great Savior. Christ has been tempted, yet is without sin. What a great hope for us that there is one, your Son, who is right before you, that he might invite us in on his merit 
He might invite us in on his life laid down. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.